service. You'll see on page 7 of your bulletin our scripture for this morning. We are continuing our series in the book of Acts this morning. Um, Acts is in the New Testament and it sort of functions as a bridge uh, between the four Gospels that talk all about Jesus and his life and ministry and the rest of the New Testament. It's sort of like the how do we get from Jesus and his ministry to like uh, the, the book of Romans or uh, the letter of 1 Timothy. Um, Acts is the bridge between those things. And um, what we see happening in Acts is that we see God uh, working through his apostles by the power of his Holy Spirit to gather and grow his church. This is where the New Testament church begins in Acts. And that theme verse, which we've talked about each week, Acts 1, verse 8, it says that this is going to start locally and expand regionally and go all the way to the ends of the earth. And so we gathered on Sunday mornings in Greenville, South Carolina, are beneficiaries of the gospel going forth by the power of the Holy Spirit starting in the book of Acts. We're beneficiaries of this. And our text this morning is all about the conversion of the Apostle Paul. Um, he's referred to in our text as Saul. That would have been his Jewish name. Um, and uh, he would later go by Paul, which would be his Roman name. And so those were sort of used interchangeably. And so I'll refer to him both as Saul and Paul um, throughout uh, my sermon this morning. But this, this is an amazing story uh, of a very unlikely person becoming a follower of Jesus. Uh, so this is especially encouraging if you're someone who... Um, thinks of yourself as too bad uh, or too far gone to become a follower of Jesus. Um, Or uh, this can be encouraging if you um, have someone in your life that you feel kind of hopeless about that they would ever come to know Jesus. That it just seems like a non-starter for them to ever have faith in Christ based on their story or who they are. You just can't envision a scenario where they would come to Jesus. Uh, So with that in mind, let me read... Acts chapter 9 for us, page 7 of your bulletin, um, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. 
And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food he was strengthened. And then down to verse 26. And when he, this is Paul or Saul, and when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. When the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for speaking to us through your word. We pray that you would come now with power to give us eyes to see. Would you remove the scales from our eyes that we might see? Would you unclog our ears that we might hear? Would you give us a heart of flesh that we might believe? Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Some of you might remember the 1989 classic, Turner and Hooch. Uh, It's an old uh, Tom Hanks movie. It was a classic during my childhood. Um, Disney Plus has recently released a sequel TV show to the movie, also called Turner and Hooch. Uh, We have watched every episode as a family. It's a little bit intense, uh, fair warning, uh, but it was a big hit in our house. Um, The premise of this show is that um, Scott Turner Jr., uh, who's playing the son of who was the Tom Hanks character in the movie, um, he inherits a dog named Hooch from his father. And Scott Turner in this show is like the most clean-cut, buttoned-up, Uh, meticulous U.S. Marshal. Everything is like perfectly in order in his life, in his Jeep, in his apartment. It's all like meticulous. And then he inherits his dog named Hooch. And um, Hooch, on the other hand, is this large, wild, messy, like constantly like shoestring drool um, dog that just comes into his life, totally destroys his apartment, wreaks total havoc um, when he comes into the office, and is like completely destructive in his life. But Turner realizes that Hooch is this amazing crime-solving dog. And that's the whole premise of the show. And he ends up helping him solve case after case. And so, of course, over the course of this show, you see Turner make this 180-degree turn from being this like uh, meticulous, clean, organized, orderly, um, non-dog, even anti-dog person to like a total dog lover. He makes a complete turn and embraces Hooch. And it's a really sweet story to see. 
uh, over the course of 18 verses in Acts chapter 9, we see a dramatic 180 degree turn in the life of Saul. Verse 1, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against disciples of the Lord. Verse 18, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained sight. Then he rose and was baptized. What happened in those 18 verses? Uh, Saul experienced a very dramatic conversion when he met Jesus and it brought about this 180 degree turn for him. All right, what do we do with a dramatic conversion story like this? Um, You may find yourself hearing this and maybe you're somewhat familiar with this story and and you could be responding in a few different ways even just after reading it. Um, You might be responding this way. All right, I believe in Jesus, but my conversion story is not nearly that dramatic. Um, Am I okay? Is my faith real? Does my faith count if it's not a big dramatic story like this? You may be feeling that. Um, Secondly, you may be feeling this. Um, I don't care how bad the Apostle Paul is described as being, I feel way worse. Jonathan, if you knew my story, if you knew my past, if you knew the things I haven't even put words to because I feel so guilty about, you would know that I've disqualified myself from being with Jesus. So no matter how dramatic this seems, I'm still too bad for this. Or third, maybe you read this and you just still feel hopeless about unbelieving friends or family. Where you think, yeah, 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 I know this is like this cool dramatic story of conversion, but if you knew who I know, then you would realize that there's no hope for them. There's no way they'll come to Jesus. Um, It's easy to read a passage like this and sort of put it in the category of like amazing Bible story and then just kind of keep it there. How do we appropriate this? What is normative? What, What is applicable from this story to our own lives? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's look at this through the lens of Saul and his journey. We're going to look at his old mission, his conversion, and then his new mission. Old mission, conversion, new mission. First, his old mission. Who was Saul and what was he living for prior to meeting Jesus? Um, If you've opened the Bible before and read some of the New Testament, you've likely read some of Paul's writings. He wrote basically half of the New Testament letters. Um, Who was he before he met Jesus? Two ways we could describe him. First as a Pharisee and then as a persecutor. One, he was a Pharisee. So uh, Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians and he describes what he was like before he met Jesus. Listen to how he describes himself. This comes from Philippians chapter 3. He says, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That's quite the resume. Paul was deeply religious prior to knowing Jesus. Deeply religious. Um, We would have considered him, if you saw his life prior to him meeting Jesus, he would be in the good person category, in the very religious person category. Um, He had the heritage, the training, uh, the knowledge, super smart, the zeal. And because of this, um, he was a part of the crowd that was deeply offended by the message of Jesus. We talked about this, if you were here two weeks ago, or if you've listened to it on the podcast, the stoning of Stephen, that whole account. There were some that were just so upset. Some of these deeply religious Jewish people, they were so upset because 
They thought that Stephen was interpreting the message of Jesus to be speaking against the law of Moses and the temple. Two things that were precious to them. And Paul was in that camp of being deeply offended because that message was pushing against his heritage. He was a deeply religious person. A Pharisee of Pharisees, trained and discipled in religious law. So he's a Pharisee, and he was a persecutor. Um, before our passage, listen, listen to where he is named. Again, in, in the account of Stephen in chapter 7, it says the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, and Saul approved of his execution. Verse 3 in chapter 8, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And beginning of our passage, chapter 9, 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, so he was actively looking for followers of Jesus or followers of the way, which is how early Christianity was described at times, followers of the way, um, so that he could do what? Throw them in prison, put them in jail. Uh, he had such a reputation for persecuting believers that even after his conversion, you heard some of that, people were afraid of him. Um, this is part of the uh, chapter 9 that we didn't read. Verse 21, it says, All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And then verse 26, when he came to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. He's like, hey guys, I'm on your team now. And they're like, I don't think so. Who was he? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees and a persecutor of followers of Jesus. Powerful, smart, intimidating, and dangerous to those who were following Jesus. Um, he's in a very different category than like maybe you have an unbelieving neighbor who's like open to spiritual conversations, uh, shops at Harris Teeter, and is like willing to come try out your new church. Okay, that was not where Saul was coming from at his conversion. Saul was known as powerful, influential, smart, and actively opposed to Jesus and his people. In sixth grade, I've shared some of this before, I was bullied by a kid named Adam. If you've ever been bullied, it's really, it's really awful. Um, Adam was bigger than me. He was stronger than me. He was a skateboarder. I was a rollerblader, so we already had that divide. Um, he dressed differently than me. He ran with a different group of friends. And for some reason, he had it out for me. I actually feel sorry for sixth grade me. Um, he had it out for me for some reason. Um, and he threatened to beat me up, which if he wanted to, he very much could have beaten me up. Um, but thanks to this friend named Sean, who was not afraid of Adam, uh, and a teacher named Miss Lawfer, who got wind of what was going on, uh, I never had to experience the wrath of Adam. But I lived in fear of him for realistically probably like two or three months. And it was uh, a, lot to, um, a lot to deal with as a kid. Um, I remember I didn't want to walk down the hall if there was a chance that I would pass Adam, especially if we might be alone. Remember, if there were certain uh, sixth grade social events happening, I was weary of going if I knew that Adam might be there. Um, but he was a threat to me, and I was afraid of him. If you were a follower of Jesus during this time, 
Saul would have been a threat to you and you would have been afraid of him. You would have not wanted to be around him, to pass him on the street, to be at a gathering where he was. It would have struck fear within you. Because why? His mission was to literally throw you in prison. And so you would avoid him at all costs. That's who he was. Pharisee, persecutor, that was his old mission. Uh, What happened on the road to Damascus? Let's look at his conversion. Conversion, second heading. Um, We can also use the word surrender here to describe Paul's coming to believe in Jesus um, because there's a sense in which he's really forced to like lay down his sword and give up his fight against Jesus and actually join Jesus in his mission. Um, But whatever you want to call this experience, there is a massive transformation for Saul. Uh, Look at verses 3 through 5 in our text. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Lord, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. All right, a few things to highlight from this. Um, The first is this, that Saul was not out looking to believe in Jesus. He was not a spiritual seeker considering the claims of Christ. He wasn't like open to the claims of Christianity. He was literally on a mission to lock up followers of Jesus. And this is when Jesus intervenes and comes and reveals himself to Paul. He would later say in Romans, Paul would write this, which is amazing. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And oh, what a picture of this on Damascus Road where Paul, en route to persecute Christians, Jesus knocks him back and reveals himself to him. Paul was still a sinner, actively going to persecute believers, and Jesus collides into him. Why? Because Jesus loved him and had the power to rescue him. Second highlight, um, and we don't have time to go into this really in depth, but isn't it interesting that the Lord uses Ananias as a key part of, of Paul's conversion? God comes to Ananias in a vision. He tells him to go lay hands on Saul of Tarsus. To which Ananias says, which is a very like a normal response. He's like, Lord, I've heard about him. And he's really dangerous. And I'm not sure I want to do that. So even in a dramatic conversion story like this, God still uses normal people to play a role in it. Normal people like Ananias, follower of Jesus, has his vision. He's scared to go, but he goes. Those are just a few highlights. But zooming out a bit, let's think about Saul's conversion. Um, what did he convert from? And what did he convert to? All right, converting from what? Um, There is some tension, and you may have picked this up. There is some tension in in who Saul uh, was. Because he was this religious, obedient Pharisee, this good person, and a powerful, violent persecutor. Um, And Jesus actually tells him that when you persecute my people, you're persecuting me. Um, What you've done to them, Saul, you've done to me. So both of those things are there. So I think we can say from Saul's disobedience um, and rebellion against Jesus that it it looked like two different things. Rebellion can look like two different things. Rebellion can look like being good. And rebellion can look like being bad. Rebellion can look like being good. Um, Paul tried to be religious and tried to be a good moral person without Jesus. That's essentially what a Pharisee was. 
But also he rebelled by being bad. He went after and locked up Christians. And even within those two categories, I wonder which resonates more with you. Um, it can seem counterintuitive, but outside of the context of knowing Jesus, our efforts to be a good moral person are actually a form of rebellion against God. How so? By our good works, apart from Jesus, we are telling a story that we don't need Jesus. That we don't need his cleansing. That we don't need his rescue. That we're good enough to make it on our own. So are you rebelling by being good? Again, maybe that's upside down as to how you've thought about your life as a good person. Or are you rebelling by being bad? Um, In what ways... Is your life um, or your past maybe uh, very actively and intentionally opposed to Jesus and his ways? Um, And do you see how whether you're rebelling by being good or by being bad, that Jesus comes to you as rescuer and savior? Uh, Jerry Bridge says this. I used to start every uh, campus ministry meeting with this quote from Jerry Bridges. He says, you're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. At the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. You're also never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. I wonder as you think about your story, even where you're at currently this morning, um, how would you categorize your rebellion against God? Uh, By trying to be good so you don't have to need God? Or by actively trying to be bad and rebelling against Him knowingly? Saul converted from being a Pharisee and a persecutor, what did he convert to? Um, Listen to how Paul describes himself after his conversion. This is 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Uh, So he goes from basically living for his resume of being like the Pharisee of Pharisees to saying, I'm actually the worst sinner. I'm the chief of sinners. So God turns uh, the proud religious persecutor into a humble, repentant apostle. Dramatic conversion. Do you see how powerful God is? And you may be in a season of life where you feel numb to that. But maybe this is enough. Do you see how powerful God is and the way that he works in the life of Paul? I listened to an interview a few weeks ago with David Brooks. That name may be familiar to you. David Brooks has been a writer for the New York Times for many years. He's an op-ed writer and um, he's written a lot of books and uh, makes a lot of appearances, does some commentary stuff on different networks. And um, uh, he... um, He's shared pretty publicly over the last five to seven years that he's become a believer. He's become a follower of Jesus, um, having been raised uh, in the Jewish tradition. And um, he tells a story of basically getting connected to a a few really thoughtful followers of Jesus. He really admired the beauty of their lives, the consistency of their beliefs, um, and was was drawn into the kingdom that way. Um, And uh, so God works in his heart, draws him into faith in Christ, and, and he's telling the story in this interview. And... He said that um, prior to his conversion, to him meeting Jesus, he wrote a book and went on a book tour and was interviewed by this, I think, pretty famous reporter. 
He didn't share her name. And then he said five years later, after he had become a believer, he wrote another book and was on a book tour and was interviewed again by the same reporter. And he said, uh, she, she said, David, you're a different person. Um, the person you were five years ago is completely different than who you are now. Something has been totally transformed in your life. Um, and he shares this is all, with all humility and as someone who said, God has intervened and transformed me for who I am. Uh, the Apostle Paul's conversion story is true. It needs to be said, this is a historic account that we're reading. Um, David Brooks's conversion story is true. He's alive today, shared this just you know, this summer. Um, I'm sure many of you, we could go around this room and hear the story of your life before meeting Jesus, what it was like to meet Jesus and the transformation that he began then and what life looks like today. But this is such a dramatic account. A larger-than-life Pharisee, Damascus Road experience, light from heaven, Jesus speaking. Um, this can be hard to relate to. It may be challenging to find yourself in this story. So what of, I want to ask this question. What of Saul's conversion is normative for us? What should we read in this text? Be like, oh, I, I need to experience that in my life to know that, that I'm really a follower of Jesus, to know that I've really been converted to faith in Christ. Here's how I want to answer that. If you look in the uh, front uh, of your bulletin, there are some, a few quotes on that reflection page, which you may never read, but I rack my brain trying to come up with these quotes. Um, there's a quote there at the bottom from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and uh, that's just a collection of questions and answers that summarize uh, what we believe the Bible to be saying. And so it was written in the 1600s. The language is a bit... Dated, but the truth is really rich. And the question 87 is this. What is repentance unto life? This is answering the question of what is normative from Saul's experience. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin, turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That's a mouthful. What does that mean? What must we uh, own and embrace if we're going to turn from a life of rebellion to a life of following Jesus? The first thing it says is we need to own and acknowledge our rebellion against God. That we are sinners and that we have rebelled against him. Whether it looks like rebelling by trying to be good or rebelling by being bad, we own and confess our sin. Secondly, it means that we have understood that God is merciful. And it's, that mercy has been shown to us in Jesus that we cannot rescue ourselves. We cannot dig ourselves out of the hole that we're in. Someone has to come down and get us. And Jesus came down and got us. He was merciful to us. Third, it means we have to actually hate our sin. And hate the life of sin, the life of rebellion that we're living. Feel the emptiness of it. See the, the end of it and the meaninglessness of it. And there's a real temptation when we we think, all right, I'm going to turn from my sin to think, then I'm going to turn to obedience. So I'm going to turn from doing bad things to doing good things. That's not what repentance is. And that's not what turning to Jesus is. Repentance is turning from the bad things we've done and turning to a person. Turning to merciful Jesus who welcomes us with open arms and forgives us. And so that's part of this process that we have to appropriate in our lives. 
turning from our life of rebellion, turning to the merciful one, Jesus, who gives us new life. And what do we do when we see Jesus? We put our faith in him. And that just means we receive and rest on not our own resume, but on his resume, on what he has done for us. And then fourthly, we commit to living in this new reality. When we come to Jesus, we put our faith in him, we're made new, we're brought on to a new team. And when we're on that new team, we live in light of that team and we do team things. So we live out obediently as followers of Jesus, this new reality in our lives. Have you experienced this type of conversion? Owning your sin, your need for mercy, turning to Jesus and living in light of this new reality. Uh, That may be a part of your story that was very gradual and slow, maybe happened in childhood over time to where you look up today and you're like, yeah, that's that's a part of my story. Or maybe you had sort of like a face down in the gutter moment where it was like the Damascus Road type experience where you hit a wall one day and you woke up to this new reality. Have you experienced this conversion? All right, we looked at Saul's old mission, his conversion. Third, what about his new mission? His new mission. Two things. I want to briefly highlight about his new mission. Uh, It gives Saul a new message, and it results in kingdom growth. So it gives him a new message. Uh, Verse 15, Jesus says to Ananias, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So not only was God going to dramatically save this Jewish religious leader who was persecuting the church, he was going to make him a chosen instrument who was going to bring Good news to non-Jews. Isn't that how God works? Verse 20, immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. Verse 26, he attempted to join the disciples. They were afraid of them. They did not believe that he was a disciple. Verse 28, so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, uh, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Um, His new message is that Jesus came to save sinners of whom he was the worst. That's his new message. And we see it result in kingdom growth. Look at verse 31, into the passage. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Um, We've seen this throughout Acts, but it continues here. God has an amazing and often counterintuitive way of growing his church. Two weeks ago, we saw it grow through persecution as people being scattered out to places they hadn't been before. But then they dug in and started preaching the gospel there. Kingdom grows. Our passage today, it happens through the conversion of one of the greatest opponents, least likely converts to the faith, Paul. God's kingdom often grows in unexpected, otherworldly upside down ways often when we think it's failing is when it's growing and it's actually guaranteed to grow because God is the one who is in control of its growth and he will continue to make it happen no matter what is happening circumstantially I wonder how the story connects with you this morning Um, I wonder if you see in this text the invitation to become a follower of Jesus, uh, to to enter into the story that's on offer to you. Um, You are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Uh, There is nothing in your story 
that disqualifies you from surrendering your life to Jesus and beginning the journey of following him. And no, you are not the exception to that. Uh, No matter what you've done, Jesus welcomes you with open arms and offers forgiveness and cleansing because he loves you. And you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Um, If you're here this morning and you pride yourself on living a good moral life, do you see that a good moral life outside of Jesus is actually a form of rebellion against Jesus? Do you feel the weight of that? And it can actually be an even more dangerous place to be because you're doing good things. Looks like a good life. Feels like a good life. Um, If you pride yourself on living a good life, are you able to see that you can never be so good that you would be beyond the need of God's grace? You are still desperately needy for his cleansing and forgiveness. Uh, To the lifelong good person, uh, the wild rebel, the doubter, the skeptic, the guilty one, adult, child, teenager, man, woman, Jesus offers himself to you this morning. Won't you reach out in faith and receive him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good news that Jesus really did come to save.